This episode of Tinfoil Tales comes with a content warning and a reminder that this podcast is for mature audiences only. Unless I haven't been paying attention, man, the moon doesn't look normal. You keep the pressure on, correct? We stay until we win, is that right? At the moment, you're under arrest for incitement. Have you guys been following me? We're winning, folks. Okay, we're winning. We're pushing back the dark. You ask simply two questions to find a filthy Freemason demolay. Where did you go to school? Which primary school? Which high school? And who's your daddy? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Tim Foyle Tales. I'm Sauce. Hello, and I'm Sandy. Welcome to the first part of a deep dive into an incredibly dark side of this movement where children are at the centre of allegations about families, courts, police, and entire government departments. We will be talking about sensitive subjects today, so we just wanted to give a second warning around content and a reminder to take care of yourself. What we hope to show is a series of connections. People within the movement, some that are well-known and others that exist on the periphery, but who are all pivotal when it comes to children and families. It's going to feel like a winding road, but stay with us. So we're going to start with a very familiar name, Peter Little. But we're going back to 2016 to talk about his involvement in the Chase Walker Stevens case. When we discuss this case and the others that we'll talk about later, we will only talk about the parts of the story that are relevant to not overstep into people's lives. You might recall in our anti-vaxxer episode, we spoke briefly about a young boy called Chase who suffers from spastic quadriplegic cerebral palsy as a result of epileptic seizures that began shortly after birth. When Chase was around 15 months old, his mum posted a GoFundMe stating she believed her son's condition was caused by a lack of oxygen during his birth. We won't pass any judgments on her belief as we are most certainly not doctors and we don't have access to his medical history. I can really understand why parents need to search for a reason when the birth of their child doesn't go as planned. You would naturally want answers and need something to blame it on. Which is how Peter Little crossed paths with them. Peter has been an anti-vaxxer for a very long time. So in 2016, he was campaigning against Big Pharma with the help of his loyal supporters, of course, and by help, we mean money. As we've said previously, Peter has been in the game for a long time. Back in 2013, he was part of a case brought against APRA who were trying to prohibit a natural therapy practitioner at the forefront of hyperbaric oxygen therapy. And if there's one thing we all know about Peter, he loves hyperbaric treatments. Just as an aside, and I did find this very, very curious, he was actually on the periphery of the Essendon Football Club doping scandal. (laughs) Yeah, he was actually in a, like, um, like a TV news report about it. 
just out of nowhere, it just popped up. Yeah, it was weird. It's like, oh, hang on. Yeah. I recognize that person. So he worked as an advisor to a company that was involved in hyperbaric chambers that the players used to use. And the players were also given injections on site at the same facility, which did lead some people to question his association with these big pharma companies that he was so actively campaigning against at the time. So in 2016, he had high hopes for fighting big pharma, which was mainly centred around expanding natural medicines, along with removing immunisation requirements and not punishing doctors for reporting adverse effects. He raised just over $8,000 through a GoFundMe. He was involved with Meryl Dory at this point, but I've often wondered how much he overplayed his involvement. There were always comments on posts from people aligned with Meryl saying he wasn't involved and that he was trying to get clout from Meryl. So it was inevitable that Chase's story would come into his orbit. And that happened at the Australian premiere of the movie Vaxxed, of all places, back in December 2016. That night on Facebook, he commented, I actually met Sinai and Mark in the foyer just before the screening and Sinai was very keen to speak straight away. So we went away to a quiet spot and did the interview. Plus, wait for tomorrow's update of what happened during the screening. I sat with the child and family through the remainder of the screening. We have found an extraordinary story, and I look forward to working closely with Vaxxed Australia and New Zealand on as many interviews as possible every time you screen Vaxxed. But Chase hadn't received any vaccinations prior to his seizure starting. But he had, like millions of other babies, received his vitamin K shot. So even though his family had previously believed it was due to a lack of oxygen, they now squarely blamed the vitamin K shot. Vitamin K is part of the anti-vax arsenal and it's not new. Back in 2000, a baby went into a hospital in the Byron Shire, bleeding from his mouth and nose. The baby was four weeks old and his family had refused the vitamin K shot. In case people don't know, vitamin K deficiency is a rare but real complication. A deficiency in the fat-soluble vitamin needed for efficient blood clotting can lead to fatal hemorrhaging. Given the life-threatening consequences, it's why babies are routinely given the shot. Tests were conducted on the baby and heartbreakingly, it was too late to save him. What was really disturbing was that the mother had been advised against the shot by a local community health nurse. In fact, the antenatal group had been taken over by anti-vaxxers. So once Chase comes into Peter's life, he just posts and posts and posts. He goes and stays with the family for a few days and records a lot of videos. Then he starts to use a tagline on all his posts. It's a sin to tell Chase a lie which is a play on the boy's mum's name. You might recall Chase Truth from the time in Epic and his failed Bitcoin venture had Truth tokens. Peter can get very fixated, which we know has dire consequences for his mental health. But Peter isn't the only person in contact with Chase's family. Hello, I'm Melissa Doyle and this is Sunday Night. It's a terrible dilemma. A classic case of what would you do? A child, just four years old, suffering from a serious disability. He's distressed, in constant pain, and gripped by violent, 
uncontrollable seizures. Understandably, his parents want him to be well and happy like other little boys. In desperation, they abandon traditional medicine and turn to a bizarre hippie-style church for help. Here's Alex Cullen. After years of treatment in hospitals, Chase's parents looked for more alternative treatments and came upon the Church of Ubuntu in Newcastle. The church was run by B.J. Fassar, who had been involved with the fight for legalisation of hemp for a decade. Before becoming the spiritual leader of the church, he was an electrician. They put Chase's parents in touch with a consultant, a deregistered doctor called Andrew Catalaris, who is also known as Dr. Pop. Sounds legit. Andrew Catalaris was deregistered back in 2005 for breaching the conditions of his medical license due to the administration of addictive drugs and supplying cannabis to friends and relatives. In 2016, he was referred to the police over his treatment of two cancer patients at the Wellness Clinic in Newcastle, which is run through the Church of Ubuntu. In September of 2015, a 56-year-old woman had been injected with cannabis oil and kept at the clinic for two days before being taken to hospital with fever, vomiting, dehydration and confusion. Prior to going to the hospital, the clinic had administered cannabis oil for pain relief, but the patient continued to vomit and her blood pressure dropped. The clinic put her on a saline drip and administered intravenous vitamin C. During her time in hospital, she suffered persistent hallucinations, confusion and abdominal pain. She died on February the 21st. An investigation found a person from the clinic had continued to visit her in hospital and brought her a green juice laced with hemp, hemp seed and frankincense. Hospital staff had advised her not to drink it. The other cancer patient was also injected at the centre and was admitted to John Hunter Hospital for several days with similar symptoms. An investigation by the New South Wales Healthcare Complaints Commission found he had breached the code of conduct for non-registered practitioners. They said he put his own interest in self-protection and self-promotion ahead of the health and safety of two vulnerable women suffering ovarian cancer. They often talk about the vaccine being experimental, whereas mm. this doctor openly admits that he was experimenting on these women yeah. and the injecting was into their ovaries, which is just horrendous. So anyway, Chase was put on an organic diet and was injected several times a day with cannabis oil. I think I, they said something, they were administering it through his peg tube. Yeah, they were. The cannabis contained THC. Chase was four years old. Chase's parents now believed that the hospital treatment was killing their son and that the Church of Ubuntu was saving him. There is a place for the use of cannabis in treatment of some illnesses. Dr Stephen Parnas, a previous vice president of the Australian Medical Association, said, We accept there is legitimate place for treating some problems like epilepsy with cannabis. But he also said he was troubled by unregulated growers providing solutions of unknown strength to sick and desperate users with little idea of possible side effects or interactions with other drugs. Mm. 
Things came to head during a routine medical examination at the Lady Cliento Hospital in Brisbane when doctors advised Chase's parents that he needed to be admitted. They were alarmed at his weight loss. In a matter of months, he had gone from 22 kilos to just over 11. Instead of admitting their son to hospital, Sinai and Mark packed up the family and drove 800 kilometres south to Newcastle, back to the Church of Ubuntu. Back in Melbourne, Peter is racing to the airport, trying to get in touch with either Dr. Pott or Paul Robert Barton, who is the secretary of the church. People were asking what they could do to help, which resulted in one of the strangest lists of things I've ever heard. So set the scene. Pete is in, he's being driven to the airport. It's dark and he's doing a live on one phone and making phone calls on another phone. And someone says, can we do anything to help? And this is what he says that he would like this person to provide. Oh God, here we go. Some yogurt, preferably Mm -hmm. low sugar, as he's currently on a ketogenic diet. Uh, Some coconut water, cashews, chewing gum, 70% dark chocolate, and triple cream brie. Okay. (laughs) Quite a list. Sounds legit. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, poor Chase. So an Amber Alert is put out, with Sinai and Mark accused of kidnapping their son. In Newcastle, someone recognises Sinai and contacts the police. No, you After a little bit of back and forth between the police, family and community services, the parents and representatives from the church he was admitted to John Hunter Hospital. Cue the candlelight vigil and badgering off the hospital. Let's keep our fingers crossed that, but as to, yeah, hang on, hang on, hang on. Here we go. Please have got it. No. Come on, come on, come on, back off. Oh, God. We've just been pepper sprayed. We've just been pepper sprayed by the police and they've grabbed Sinny and they've got me in my right eye. While undergoing treatment in hospital, Chase is removed from the care of his parents. This sparks a series of Facebook posts from Peter Little, Tay Winterstein, Meryl Dory and members of the Church of Ubuntu. Paul Robert Burton, the secretary of the church, posted comments and videos to Facebook featuring information about Chase's medical condition and treatment plans and also the names of his treating doctors. He was asked by family and community services to remove the posts, but he didn't. But then he received a summons from the New South Wales Supreme Court and the posts were removed. 
A suppression order was then put in place to prohibit both Paul Robert Burton and Dr. Pod from posting any information relating to the case. Charges were subsequently laid. Four counts of unlawfully broadcasting and publishing the name of child and six counts of recklessly contravening a non-publication order. But Paul believes he did nothing wrong in relation to the Facebook posts, as Chase's removal was without a warrant, and that children are being regularly removed without warrant or explanation in New South Wales. Some of the charges were dropped, some of them are still ongoing. But let's talk about Paul Burton a little bit more. He calls himself a minister of religion, a bard, an environmentalist, a paralegal, and human rights advocate. If you've seen the movie Love Actually, he kind of looks like a cross between Bill Nye's character and Sasha Stone. (laughs) (laughs) On his website, you will find his spiritual guidance, a way to donate for him to place alms, a way to donate for a variety of cases they have running. You can download a no trespass sign. And you can listen to his music. (laughs) That's right. He's a musician. So what happened with Chase? Well, he was returned to his family in March of 2019 and recently celebrated his 11th birthday. Next up, the story of Grace Hughes, a young girl who was kidnapped by her mother in the Northern Territory. In August 2022, during a supervised visit, Laura Hinks vanished with her five-year-old daughter, which sparked a major joint operation with Northern Territory and Federal Police. Grace and her brother were in the care of their father at the time, and police reported that Laura and another woman, Juliet Aldroyd, were involved in a violent struggle with the father when it came time to return the children. Both children were originally taken, but her son managed to get the attention of people when he started yelling. Juliet Aldroyd is the wife of Craig, a man who a lot of people believe to be Indigenous, but he isn't. He is a Sovsit, though, who says his place of residence is an embassy for a tribal nation. Laura's story is quickly shared across Telegram, and Save Grace Hughes campaign is born. Banners are made and the hashtag Saving Grace is everywhere. But as the days go by, the story gets a bit deeper. It's more than a custody dispute. Laura has made serious allegations against the father of the children. She claims that Grace told her things, not only about her father, but about a ring of high-profile people. But when Grace underwent a forensic interview with child protection agents, they believed she had been told what to say. The children were then removed from Laura's care. One of the most invasive interviews was with Laura and Dale Holmes. (sighs) Yeah. For those who are, we haven't mentioned Dale on this podcast yet, I don't believe, but he is a conspiracy theorist. (laughs) Through and through, oh, yeah. <laughs> all the way. Yeah. And a bit of an influencer as well. 
But disturbingly, he had Laura graphically describe the things Grace had told her. As a parent, it was very difficult to watch it. Her daughter was being discussed like she was playing a role in a movie. Given the allegations against high-profile people, this naturally got the attention of everyone who subscribes to the Bill Heffernan 28 Names conspiracy. Laura believes a recent friend was planted into her life by authorities to cause trouble for her. This friend actually looked after her son for a while, with Laura believing this was to make sure the kids couldn't corroborate each other's stories. In this interview, Laura disclosed that she had also taped her daughter making allegations against her ex-husband's family members. Mm. There was an interesting moment in the interview. Her daughter had also made an allegation against one of Laura's friends, but like her insistence that there was no way that could be true. Everything else was true, but there's no way that that could have been true. And that's pretty much what did it in for me. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So Laura also tells her own story and it's familiar, a story of recovered memories, memories of previous abuse and trauma. Laura recounts that she was abused from the age of three and that she recovered these memories later in life. She also states that her mother was born on a military base in Germany and that she was also abused. This link to a military base is important. It's something we've heard before by people like Rachel Vaughan and Adrian Wells, who both alleged they were abused by well-known people as children, that military bases were used as hubs and it was covered up by the police, courts and government agencies. We spoke about Rachel Vaughan and the evidence she gave to the International Tribunal for Natural Justice in our episode on Sasha Stone. Adrian Wells was brought to the Canberra protest by Peter Liddell. Remember Peter going into the city police station to lay charges on Scott Morrison and Adrian speaking on the stage while Johnny Q and Craig Cole were arguing? Yeah. Naturally, people wanted Laura to get help, but help from within the freedom community because they don't trust the system. That help was Serene Tefaha. Oh, Lord. Serene and Laura appear on a number of different channels, with Serene saying that the court targets beautiful women, women who are vegans or homeschool their children or do yoga. Serene has a long history with the family court system, and she has saved her most scathing vitriol for them. Who can forget that screaming rant at a protest? She openly says the family court have been taken over by a pedophile network. One of the first things she did was to try to distance Laura from the Sovsit movement as she knew that that was a free kick for the media. But then she started doing serene things, like emailing the court in her capacity as a friend of the court. Dear Supreme Court Registrar, Miss Hinks has received the correspondence. I would have appreciated it if you had copied me on it. This was the opening line of her attempt to withdraw an appeal that they made. It wasn't withdrawn. Instead, it was deemed incompetent. Serene quickly posted what she thought of that. Well, I have since clarified that the corrupt judge asserts that she will ignore this correspondence and Laura's request for withdrawal and insist on declaring the application as incompetent. What a tosser of a judge. <laughs> I don't do a very good Serene impersonation. I don't think anyone she can. She's way more correct. intense. No one can do Serene. <laughs> <laughs> she wasn't happy with the media reporting either. 
Northern Territory News, you absolute defamatory tossers. Laura <laughs> has too many fish to fry right now, but the appeal was not incompetent. It was withdrawn, you tossers, because of a recent precedent that determined you can't appeal cases where the substantive issue has not been determined. Therefore, it had to be withdrawn for want of jurisdiction, not because it was incompetent, News Corp, you absolute tossers of journalists. <laughs> she rage posts every interaction with the courts and media alike. But Serene also posts a blow-by-blow account of the case, along with the child's private medical records, which is just such an invasion of her privacy, just completely unnecessary. If we know one thing about Serene, it's that she won't hold back. So let's just talk about Serene losing her license. Contrary to popular belief in the freedom movement, it was not due to her case against the government for the snap lockdown of the housing towers. We are going to talk about two cases that were referenced by the Victorian Legal Services Board. There is no judgment here from us on the parents involved, but we do need to talk a little bit about the cases. The first case that brought Aya from the courts involved a custody dispute. Serene was acting for a mother whose child had been placed with its father as part of a court order that was initially triggered by the mother's mental health. This order was put in place when the mother failed to attend court due to a mental health crisis. These were the words used in court by Serene. Following this, the court ordered that there need to be independent evidence as to the mother's current mental health functioning in relation to the extent that it does not present a risk to the safety of the child. Orders were made for the mother to attend sessions and that an independent child lawyer be appointed to act for the child. Unfortunately, after this order, things escalated on a number of fronts. Firstly, the mother made allegations that the father posed a risk of physical harm, psychological harm, and possible sexual abuse. The mother had been psychologically assessed prior to the court hearing and diagnosed as having a mixed personality disorder with narcissistic features. The psychologist noted a pervasive pattern of grandiosity, emotional dysregulation, and unstable interpersonal relationships. She struggles to doubt her assumptions, even when presented with evidence to the contrary, she disregards it. Secondly, the father contacted Serene by telephone, which obviously he should not have done. But Serene not only answered the call, she indicated to the mother to start recording. Serene believes direct threats were made in that call and subsequently went with the mother to a police station to file a report and get an AVO. Following this, the father made an application to the court for Serene to be removed from the case given that she was now a witness to that AVO. It's just really messy. But the judge had bigger concerns, saying, There are a multitude of reasons in this case why the mother's solicitor should not be acting on the mother's behalf in proceedings. Not least, in my view, the likely detriment to the mother's case if she were to continue to do so. They include the obvious conflict and circumstances where she has described herself as a mutual friend of both the father and the mother. Her telephone conversation with the father in breach of her written undertaking to the father's solicitor not to contact or communicate with the father without their written knowledge or consent and her being a witness 
in the intervention order proceedings. Although it may have been the father who initiated the call to the mother's solicitor, she was clearly aware of her obligation not to communicate with him and would or should have understood that she should terminate that call. To the contrary, it was the mother's evidence that her solicitor kept the father on the phone for as long as possible to get information from him about the dangerous and false allegations he was making against her. Just a note here, the judge listened to the entire phone recording and did not hear any direct threats against the mother. There also appears to have been a letter sent by Serene, which was also raised. The letter the mother's solicitor sent to the Chief Justice of this court, the Chief Magistrate of the Magistrates Court of Victoria and the Deputy Assistant Commissioner of Victoria Police complaining about the conduct of the judges of this court, the Chief Magistrate and the Deputy Commissioner, the independent children's lawyer and psychologist, was also, in my view, totally inappropriate and, more importantly, highlighted the mother's solicitor's total lack of objectivity and in those circumstances, the inappropriateness of her continuing to act on the mother's behalf in these proceedings. An excerpt from that letter stated, I will not apologise for the passion I now have to expose the Family Court of Australia and its judges as enablers of violence and abuse. Serene was removed from the case and the magistrate indicated that a complaint would be made to the Legal Services Board. She was subsequently ordered to pay half of the father's costs related to the case. Her share was $20,000. She talks about this case a lot and, in fact, the woman involved once took to the stage next to Serene at a protest during lockdowns. They actually became friends, yeah. like best friends. Yeah. yeah, I think they were friends before this. And again, we are not passing judgment. We're not lawyers. We're going off what we've read. We're not passing judgment on you know, what's true and what's not true in these cases. The second case that was referred to the board relates to a case in the Queensland Magistrates Court. In that case, Serene was representing a grandmother who again had made allegations against the father of a child. The grandmother then took the child, much like the Grace Hughes case. That magistrate referred Serene based on comments she made in court, saying the child had been let down by police and judiciary, and the court was enabling his abuse. The magistrate stated, In my view, Ms. Tefaha's comments may be prejudicial to or diminish the public confidence in the administration of justice. There may be a breach of your fundamental duty as a solicitor practicing in Queensland. The grandmother at the centre of this case is called Anne Greer, and she was one of seven co-accused. This case is ongoing and we will return to it in part two of this story. And as for Grace's mother, Laura Hinks, she and Grace were found after two weeks missing in the Northern Territory and Laura is facing trial. Tell him that she's dead. That that's 
scarecrow name's dead. You take that straw man. We will wrap up this episode with a brief account of Deborah Robinson. Sorry, her name's Deborah. Oh, Deborah. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Of course it is. Of course it is. (laughs) We will wrap up this episode with a brief account of Deborah Robinson, who you heard in that clip telling the police that she is dead. (laughs) (laughs) Deborah is charged with two counts of making false accusations with intent to subject another to an investigation, one count of making a false call to an emergency number, and one count of acting with intent to pervert the court of justice relating to an alleged incident in 2017. Just another strong content warning here, as Deborah tells quite a story. Back in 2017, Deborah was a dance teacher in the Illawarra region and reported two parents to the Department of Child Services for drug dealing and abuse. Deborah does state that she had a history of mental health problems and was seeing a psychologist every two weeks. She also reported the parents to that psychologist. She alleges that when she was fitting children for their dance costumes, she noticed bruising. She also believes that the local base hospital was involved in hiding injuries to the town's children. She believed that school children were being used as drug mules across the school bus network in five different townships, smuggling methamphetamines. She alleges that the people she named in her report then broke into her home and assaulted her physically and sexually, that they planned to kill her and bury her on their property. Deborah believes the police in the area are corrupt and that they openly cover for the perpetrators. She names specific police officers and even infers that police poisoned the dams of people who spoke out. The details of the investigation of this case are hard to find, but the allegations were obviously investigated and resulted in charges being laid on Deborah. She has proven difficult to get in front of the courts and is currently on the wanted list for the second time after her last appearance. During that appearance, the magistrate left the court after warning her that use of pseudo-legal phrases wouldn't be well received. When the magistrate left, a common law sheriff quickly called a grand jury and they found Deborah not guilty. (laughs) She hasn't been seen since. Deborah has made a lot of allegation. She tells of incest, of five townships involved in a drug and pedophile ring, that the Brethren Church is the epicenter, that the family were chased by Freemasons for four months, that her family were taken in by an Indigenous tribe who let her walk on warrior land. She says that there is a local phrase, dollar drop babies, the name given to girls as young as 11 who were being used to provide babies for a price, and more disturbingly, that people could purchase placentas. The reason being, she believes that the placenta is the baby's dead twin and has more energy. She even makes a claim that the Vatican has a piece of all our placentas. She believes that schools are indoctrinating children, that they are telling children to wear burqas in class, that Sharia law is upon us. She is a lot. Mm. Listening to her is like a live reading of everything you have heard, Sasha Stone, David Icke, Ricardo Bosi and Alex Jones say in the last 10 years. 
One of the allegations she makes centres around a boy who she says was taken by Child Protective Services, a boy who is listed as missing. She believes there is an active pedophile ring involved. She states that she, along with others, were sending women and children that were being abused to a doctor in Grafton who was then finding them refuge. She goes on to say he wasn't trafficking the children, he was saving them. That doctor's name is Russell Pridgen. He is one of the co-accused in the case we spoke about earlier, the case involving Anne Greer, who was represented by Serene. The advocate in that case, the person helping them fight it in court, is Paul Robert Barton, the man involved alongside Peter Little in the Chase Walker-Stevens case. And look, we are not saying that child abuse within families doesn't happen. In fact, most children are abused by people close to them. But we do have to question whether the prevalence in the movement is confirmation bias. Do they instantly believe the accusations to justify their belief in the cabal they have been told about so often? The stories people tell seem to develop over time, with more and more details being added. But does this happen because people are thirsty for an even bigger story? And why are these cases being brought to court by people with no practising certificates? or people who have had their licenses revoked? Is it that lawyers with experience in these areas have refused to take their cases? Or is it their distrust of the legal system that's so ingrained that they choose people, regardless if they are qualified, from within the movement, which could actually then be impacting their own cases? In the next part of this deep dive, we will look further into the case involving Pridgen and Greer a case that was the result of a federal police investigation into people allegedly assisting with the parental abduction of children across Australia. Thanks for listening. As always, we appreciate your ears. You can find us on Twitter, Sauce149 and Sunny Sandy L with two E's. You can also find us on our new Twitter handle, tinfoiltales underscore AU. And if that isn't enough, head over to our Patreon where you will find some book reviews and some other bits and pieces. Link is in the show notes. Take care for now. Bye everyone. Bye everyone. <laughs>